This is David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 11, Citizen Game, Part 3. The 1941 movie Citizen Kane is one of the best movies of all time. I don't know any film fan or critic who disagrees with that. It's a towering achievement of epic storytelling and cinematography, and although we now know that Herman Mankiewicz had a substantial role in writing the screenplay, there's really no question that Kane was primarily the product of the ambition and vision of the producer, director, and star Orson Welles. If you haven't seen it, you should. It's so much more than the whispered Rosebud, which after all was the movie's motif, but which has become a distorted and much satirized meme. Gloomhaven, released in 2017, is tabletop Citizen Kane, for it too is a towering, almost intimidating achievement of epic storytelling and game design. Gloomhaven required the labor of many to bring it to fruition, graphic designers, illustrators, proofreaders, production supervisors, and so on, but like Kane, it was the realization of the vision of just one person, in this case, designer Isaac Childress. Gloomhaven is a cooperative game set in a fantasy world, where players take the role of heroes embarking on a series of both collective and individual quests. There's a main storyline, but also plenty of opportunities to branch off. I call it Skyrim in a box. And it is a huge box. 41 centimeters by 29.7 centimeters by 19 centimeters, weighing 9.5 kilograms. That's 16 inches by 11.7 inches by 7.5 inches and 21 pounds for you non-metric people. Gloomhaven came along at just the right time. In part one of this episode, I discussed how both publishers and gamers had become more and more willing and eager to embrace big, expensive games. And in part two, I looked at the increasingly blurred lines between role-playing and regular tabletop games. Having established all that backstory, I'm finally ready to tell the story of how Childress brought Gloomhaven into being. Childress grew up in Bakersfield, California, graduating from high school there in the year 2000. As a kid, he read Tolkien and played D&D, but also Final Fantasy and other video RPGs. He went to university in Oklahoma, majoring in physics and journalism then decided to concentrate on physics and material science for his PhD at Purdue University in Indiana, with a thesis on high-energy particles. At some point, he entered the world of tabletop games through the gateway of Catan, as many people did. But it wasn't until he was introduced to Puerto Rico and Agricola that he really got turned on. He found he hated games that relied too much on dice and chance, and gravitated instead to engine-building euros. This aversion to dice would end up having a profound effect on Childress' game design ethos, as we shall see. While working on the thesis for his PhD, he decided to try his hand at designing a game of his own. Inspired by how Stefan Feld incorporated the classic game Mancala into his 2011 design Trajan, Childress wanted to explore adding spatial reasoning to a Euro-style economic game. 
He also wanted to incentivize long-term planning by using a mechanism like the gear-driven 2012 game Tolkien, where the longer workers remained in place, the more powerful their actions became when they were used. He envisioned a system of quests, where players had to constantly keep adding resources to them in order to make them succeed. The result was an epic six-hour game he called Forge War. As intended, it was a heavy economic game, but instead of the usual medieval traders or modern technocrats, players were dwarven blacksmiths in a D&D-like fantasy world. They gathered ore from mines, bought weapon and armor designs, and instead of fighting the critters of the world directly, they invested in quests, supplying adventurers who did the slaying for them, bringing back treasure and more ore to begin the cycle again. By 2013, he had a workable prototype and began playtesting it within his group of friends. They enjoyed it, but felt it was a bit too heavy and long, so he went at the design with hammer and tongs, pun intended, keeping only the design elements that had a distinct purpose in the game, and making sure every player decision was meaningful. Even then, the game still took three plus hours, so he also designed an abbreviated version for players who were strapped for time. Childress thought Forge War was good, really good, but wanted to find out if other people would think so too, so he decided to mount a Kickstarter campaign for it. He set a goal of $25,000. By the end of the campaign, almost 1,800 people had helped raise more than $100,000. I remember buying and playing Forge War from my local game store and finding it average. Certainly a solid design, a good debut, but mechanically nothing special. Certainly it did not prepare me for Childress's next design. It was during the development of Forge War that Childress became interested in the card mechanisms of a cooperative superhero game called Sentinels of the Multiverse, designed by Christopher Bedell, Paul Bender, and Adam Rabotaro. Players had unique decks reflecting the powers of their heroes, and the game's mechanisms controlled the schemes and responses of the villain. Childress loved how each hero deck felt so different to play, and wanted to adapt the idea to work in a tactical skirmish-type game. His first attempt at this had players controlling not a single fighter, but multiple tribes, each of which had from 1 to 10 citizens. Each tribe had different combat characteristics or powers, and the number of people in the tribe determined its relative contribution to the overall combat. Each tribe had a uniquely wonderful feel, but the prototype fell apart due to its complexity, as well as the completely deterministic combat system, which was, to quote Childress, fiddly to an absurd degree. Childress realized he needed to let the idea marinate for a while. Besides, he was busy enough with his graduate studies and the Forge War campaign, so he put the new idea aside until Forge War was released. Only then did he commit himself to the idea that his next game would be a dungeon crawler with an emphasis on tactical combat. During that marination period, Childress was also following Tabletop Deathmatch, a kind of reality show game design competition set up by the folks from Cards Against Humanity. Out of thousands of submissions, 16 finalists had been chosen to compete for the title of The Next Great Independent Game. Two of those finalists had ideas that profoundly influenced Childress. The first was The Shadow Over Westminster, 
a cooperative deck builder with a Cthulhu-esque theme. Instead of having a player mat to represent their characters with the usual laundry list of stats like strength, intelligence, and charisma, players' decks themselves embodied these attributes. Childers thought that this was a very elegant way to streamline and simplify the whole idea of character statistics that was part and parcel of any RPG system. The second game was Rocket Wreckers, whose cards each had an action and a distance on them. The twist was that on their turn, players would each play two cards, choosing one for its action and the other for its distance. Childress admired how this one idea led to what he called dynamic decision-making. Synthesizing these two ideas led to a creative Big Bang, which formed the core of what became Gloomhaven. Childress added the idea of adding initiative numbers to the cards, which would determine player order, and either borrowed or reinvented the concept of cards in a player's deck representing a player's stamina, which had been used in the Pathfinder Adventure card game that I mentioned in Part 2. Childress' hatred of using dice for any randomization affected his choices for both automating monster behavior and handling combat. Each monster had its own deck, which modified its basic stats from turn to turn. Some turns, the monster might move slower than normal, but attack more fiercely. Other turns, the monster wouldn't attack, but move more quickly, or heal, or summon other beasties. As for combat, children's cards provided modifiers to player character combat stats. In both cases, decks could be modified to reflect changes in game state much more easily and on the fly, without players having to continuously consult player mats or charts or remember modifiers. With those systems in place, Childress had himself a very fun tactical dungeon crawler. Now, he turned to the campaign and storyline. As we saw in part two, there were already many popular campaign-driven dungeon crawlers, in particular Fantasy Flight's Descent. While Childress admired Descent's design, he felt he could do better. He wanted something that could emulate a D&D campaign or even one of the Elder Scrolls video games, something huge, non-linear, and dynamic, which responded to choices that the players made. He wanted mechanisms which would draw players back to the game week after week, which meant two things. One, he needed to have goals that players would want to work towards, and two, he wanted there to be content which would only reveal itself over time, piquing players' curiosity. Childress also wanted to avoid a problem that had faced RPG groups and many video games since almost their very beginning. Once characters got too powerful, the game became somewhat boring. Two basic mechanisms took care of all three of these things. The first was that Although there were 17 character classes included in the game, only six were available at the start. The others had to be unlocked by leveling up an original character to level 9 via the usual accumulation of experience points, as well as fulfilling a personal quest that was generated when the character was created. This gave each character a narrative arc of her own, as well as providing opportunities and motivation for side questing. The other basic mechanism for the campaign was the world itself. Childress had always enjoyed the world-building aspects of being a dungeon master. After all, he thought, why let J.R.R. Tolkien have all the fun? 
So he populated his realm with an astounding 95 locations and 36 original monster types plus 13 unique bosses. Again, borrowing and adapting from video games such as Skyrim, players were provided a map of the world which started blank and were given stickers for the locations which they would affix to the map as they were unlocked after completing individual scenarios, sometimes just one at a time, sometimes two or three. Some furthered the main storyline, but others provided opportunities for characters to work towards their personal goals, or find unique treasures, or increase their party's reputation, which was yet another mechanic Childress introduced to both add flavor and options. In short, while Childress had not specifically set out to do so, the game that he had ended up with was a legacy-style game. And it was big. Very big. And unlike Descent, it couldn't really be broken up and doled out piecemeal via expansions. It was all going to have to be in one very big box. But would gamers pay for such a thing? They would. And they did. Childress timing could not have been better. The Kickstarter campaign for Gloomhaven launched in early 2015. As we saw in Part 1... Over the 2010s, tabletop players had become more and more willing to pay more for their games as long as they got value for their money. In Gloomhaven, they got a 9.5 kilogram or 21 pound box with hundreds of hours of gameplay without the need for a game master, all for about $100 US, including shipping. No need to wait or pay for expansions doled out a bit at a time, the value for your money for Gloomhaven was, and is, astounding. And, as we saw in part two of this episode, the market was more eager than ever for tabletop games that had an RPG vibe, especially one that offered a huge open world with all original content. Gloomhaven had appeared at the right time, at the intersection of Bling and RPG. The campaign raised over $386,000, over five times the goal Childress had set, and attracted more than 4,900 backers. The first commercial print run sold out in weeks, then the second, and then the third. By August of 2018, Gloomhaven had sold an astonishing 120,000 copies, and people clamored for more. But not me, dear listeners, not me. I'd already invested considerably in Descent, both first and second editions, as well as having backed Myth, one of the notorious Kickstarter failures I mentioned in part one, so I was a bit gun-shy. Childress had only ever designed one game before Gloomhaven, and it wasn't that great a game that I felt I should invest more than $100 Canadian in it. But then copies began arriving on people's doorsteps, and people began sharing session reports on BGG, and I watched it begin to climb the rankings, and I started coming down with a bad, bad case of FOMO. Fear of missing out. I'd logged hundreds of hours in Skyrim, and always wanted a tabletop version, and now, clearly, here it was, and I'd missed it. Only 2,000 copies had been initially printed for retail, and they'd already been all snapped up. So I resigned myself to having to back the second printing and wait for it when someone offered up a copy of the first printing in a local math trade. 
indicating they'd be open to monetary offers before the trade closed. Figuring I had nothing to lose, I sent the person a message. After only a tiny bit of haggling, I soon found myself driving an hour and a half outside the city to a gas station in the middle of nowhere to buy this still boxed copy for twice the price I would have paid had I backed the initial Kickstarter. And then I turned around and drove 90 minutes back home. Mind you, I was curious. Why are you selling it? I asked him there by the light of the gas pumps. It turned out that he'd bought it hoping his gaming group would share his enthusiasm, only to find that they just weren't interested. And realizing he could make a tidy profit from those such as myself who'd missed out, he'd happily turned it into cash. I totally do not blame him for doing so, nor do I think he overcharged me. After all, I could have said no, and he'd already had offers to pay even more than what I'd paid if I backed out. Indeed, Many who bought Gloomhaven soon found out that their eyes had been bigger than their stomachs, tabletop-wise. It's not that it was a hard game to learn, but it was challenging, even at the easiest difficulty. Even its first few scenarios could take repeated plays to beat, until players mastered Childress's deck management systems and all the different mechanics. Unlike most dungeon crawlers, Every Gloomhaven scenario was effectively on a timer, since players eventually ran out of cards and their characters became exhausted and you lost the scenario. You couldn't just hack and slash with your best combos over and over again. You had to work closely with your comrades to operate as efficiently as possible. There was no time to dawdle. Furthermore, Gloomhaven's very size worked against it in terms of its setup and takedown times and table requirements. The sheer amount of components demanded special storage solutions, and BGG was buzzing with people sharing their systems of tackle boxes and tuck boxes and inserts. Of course, soon enough, third-party vendors got into the game, no pun intended, selling prefabricated inserts, and it still took 20 minutes or more to set up. Nonetheless, as a proof of concept, Gloomhaven showed that players would shell out over $100 for a game if it promised enough bang, or bling, or both. Thus, it was followed by a string of huge games, both on Kickstarter and commercially. Cthulhu Wars, Kingdom Death Monster, Dark Souls the Board Game, Rising Sun, Seventh Continent. And before most people had come close to working through Gloomhaven's content, there were already cries for a sequel. In fact, Childress had already begun working on one almost as soon as Gloomhaven hit retail, as well, and at the same time, as running a play-by-forum mini-campaign on BGG. The expansion, Forgotten Circles, was released in 2019 and sold nearly as well as the base game. I was working at a game store at the time, and I noted with amusement how people would come in to pick up their pre-orders or buy it, and freely admit that they'd barely begun even the base campaign. I also had one guy come in and just ask for the biggest, most complicated game we had. I just led him to Gloomhaven. In 2019, Childress announced he'd partnered with Asmodee Digital to bring Gloomhaven to Steam. As of this moment, the game is in early access and far from a complete port. The tactical combat system is there and works well, but the campaign is still embryonic and they've just implemented multiplayer co-op, which I've tried and it works well enough, but there's plenty more to come. We hope. 
In 2020, Childress released Jaws of the Lion, which, unlike Forgotten Circles, was a standalone but compatible sequel to Gloomhaven, which solved the biggest problem Gloomhaven had, learning the game and mastering its tactics. Jaws of the Lion's campaign rolled out the rules gradually over the first few scenarios, and the difficulty levels were dialed way back. It was a perfect mini-prequel, and naturally, I understood it benefited from almost four years of hindsight and experience about how to teach the game, but I couldn't help wistfully wishing it had come out first. And then there was the moment so many people had been waiting for, an announcement of a big box sequel, Frosthaven. Promising, quote, the same award-winning gameplay along with new twists centered around resource gathering and town building, unquote, Frosthaven attracted an astounding 83,000 backers and almost $13 million in pledges, shattering the record for most funded Kickstarter board game that had been set by Kingdom Death Monster 1.5. In the end, Childress himself considered Gloomhaven to be more like a video game RPG than a traditional tabletop RPG. In an AMA on Reddit in April of 2017, he said... If I'm being honest, when I play Gloomhaven, I don't actually do much role-playing. I think there's enough story and theme there to do that sort of stuff, and in a sense, I did design it as an alternative for an RPG group when no one wants to DM. The main thing I wanted to emulate with tabletop RPGs was that feeling of an open world that can react to the player's choices, that feeling of a dialogue between the people playing the game and the person running the game. In calling Gloomhaven the Citizen Kane of Tabletop, I'm not saying Isaac Childress is like Orson Welles. I mean, from all I've read and heard, Childress has a humility that Welles could never be accused of having. And saying that Childress and Welles have the same psychological makeup, well, that would be going too far. But it's clear that Childress must have had and has the same drive and independent streak that marked Wells throughout his career. I'm also not predicting that Childress' career will follow the same arc as Wells's did, though I'd argue his 2018 standalone tiling economic game Founders of Gloomhaven smacks a bit of Wells's post-Kane work, like The Magnificent Ambersons or Macbeth. I mean, it has its fans, but to me, Childress's admiration for heavy euros doesn't translate into compelling and original storytelling and gameplay. Though, I give him points for trying. And so, finally, the Gloomhaven saga here at the Game Changers comes to an end. In the next episode, we'll start looking at the current state of affairs in the art of tabletop, starting with a genre that has had a most unlikely revival and the designer who helped put it back on the map, whose prolific output over the past three years rivals that of the old doctor, Reiner Knizia. That was part three of episode 11 of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And... Don't flip that table. <laughs>